All right, so uh, let's see. It is uh, March Madness, and with March Madness, one of the things we talked about was wanting to make sure that you all could hear the things that you wanted to hear. And so uh, we had a, a variety of options out on the table, and throughout the month of February, you kind of voted them to different locations to get down to the four basic things that we are going to cover here in the month of March. And we've got some cool things that we're handling. But today is an interesting one as we look at world religions. In fact, we titled this message, Jesus versus Religions, because again, that's really in a lot of ways what this is all about. Now, to do this, to look at this topic, I have to tell you, man, it is challenging. It is just a challenging topic. I mean, Think about just religion for a second and all the things that religion touches. I mean, all the things that it touches. I mean, you almost can't think of something where religion isn't a part of the equation. So you you think about issues of sexuality. Well, religion touches that. You think about things as far as economy. Religion touches that. You turn on the news and you see a lot of conflict in the world. A lot of that conflict is driven by religion. Right? Issues of family tethered to religion. Issues of how we handle our money tethers to religion. Uh, certainly society, much of it is religious. The bulk of Americans hold some religious values. The bulk of the planet is religious. I mean, for all of that, that is a very encompassing topic. Now, with that, we would also say it's very important. It's very important, very profound but very expansive. In fact, this week when I was doing some of my my study, I came across a picture that I thought was really um, profound for this. Uh, What is your worldview? I don't know how well you can see that out there. If you ever get a chance to look up this up close, man, it's really helpful, but it gives you a sense of all the different ways and all the different challenges that we have when we look at this particular topic, I mean, you just look up here, you can have anything from an agnostic to an atheist to a nihilist, all the way to a pantheist, a panentheist, a theist, a deist, a polytheist. Wow, it's a lot of words, man. And all of those things have some kind of religious identity or ideology behind it. All of them do. All of them. In fact, even things like atheism. Even though it isn't a religion, it has an ideology behind it that might as well put it in the camp of religion. Same with radical environmentalism, right? They say, no, it's just about the environment. Well, no, some people become so radical, it's almost paganized as an ideology. It becomes a religion. So with that, we have a lot of different religious ideas to deal with. And then to complicate it further, look at some of the people who lead some of these religions and you can understand it. Bring up the next slide. Anywhere from the Pope to Yoda runs religion, right? And everything in between, you know, back in the day, it would have been cool to put like Osteen in with uh, like Ayatollah and watch them go for three rounds. That would have, that would have been sweet, right? So many different views, so many different ideas, so many different personalities, so many things to look at in this topic. In fact, if you don't think it's complicated enough, let me complicate it even a little bit more, right? I have, again, fun things. And and, and what this basically shows is in the world, there are 21 different kind of religious titles or headings, Right? So, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, you know, and then other things, some of which you've probably never heard of. And so you would think, well, it'd be easy enough to just say, you know what, we're just going to deal with Hinduism. We're just going to understand Hinduism. But the problem is with Hinduism is you crack it open and you realize you're not just dealing with Hinduism, you're dealing with four different strands of Hinduism. And so, which strand do you want to deal with? Maybe it's Islam. We go, we just want to talk about Islam. It's just one thing to deal with, but then you crack that open and you have eight strands of Muslim or Islam. I mean, you have anything from Sunni and Shia to maybe even the nation of, right? So Farrakhan and and he's pink. That's what he gets. All right. So, but you, you have that. And then you have Christian religion right there. Christian religion is really delightful. 
Because, oh man, there's so much. It goes everywhere, everywhere. You've got Catholics, you've got Protestants. Oh man, you've got Eastern Orthodox. And then you've got all the denominations under that. Right? You've got Mormons, you've got Jehovah's Witnesses, you've got Methodists, you've got Baptists, you've got everything under this label Christian. Not all of which I would even say is authentically Christian. And then you have... Atheism. Nothing. All right. So, um, <laughs> hey, they'll say it themselves, man. That's, that's all I got there. So, all right. So, all of that, again, like I said, makes it immensely complicated, right? So, the topic's this big, and we have now 40 minutes to do it all. All right. So, how do we do this? How do we punch through all of the challenge, all of the amount, all of the stuff? Well, I want to start someplace I, I, I think that's relatively simple. All right, And, and I do believe it's simple. I, I think we could do some comparative study. I think comparative study is good and useful. But again, with 21 options and sub-options and all of that, we don't have the time for comparative study. So with that, the first thing I want to stress for us this morning as we ponder the topic of world religions is to own one thing. I want us to concede one basic point, and that is that all the religions that are in the world are fundamentally the same. All of the religions in the world are fundamentally the same. Now, some are already like their gears are spinning. Just buckle in for one second. If you need a five point, do that. It's cool. Um, but, but here's what I mean. Bring up this. Okay, you got to hear That's Stop right there. I, I came across this symbol this week, just surfing through stuff, just trying to look at world religions. And I thought, wow, this thing captures it well to, to uh, iconicize the idea, right? So you've got everything, right? You've got Christianity and Islam and Judaism and all these different things. And all of these icons are surrounding one fundamental icon that links them all. It's a lake with fire, right? Is that not the weirdest thing ever? That they chose a lake with fire to be the unifying symbol. I don't think you're catching that. That's weird. They chose it. I didn't choose it. I didn't design it, but it's right. And that's the idea. When we say they're all fundamentally the same, what we mean by that is they are all the same in that they cannot save. That's where they're the same. We, we'll, we'll talk about diversity and all of that later, but for now, understand that's where they're the same. Now, I, I want to concede some things about this point on religion globally. Uh, the first in this is to say that by saying they're all the same, they don't save, isn't to say that all of them are bad from kind of an under-the-sun perspective. Right? They're, they're not all bad in the social sense of what we mean by that. In other words, uh, a lot of them promote morality, they promote the golden rule, they promote kindness to your fellow man, they're designed to help the people around them. That's not bad. That's a good thing. It's just, just not a saving thing. So when we meet people of other religions, it's not like we're like this to them, are we? We go, they're generally good people. They're nice people. They're caring people. It's just religion doesn't save. See, one of the things we see in a lot of religions is a commonality of morality, right? Common ethics, a common sense of social standard. And the reason is simple. In Romans chapter 2, Paul tells us something about how the human person is designed. He says in Romans chapter 2, verse 14, he says, For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. For even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their con- conflict uh, and it conflicts in them, either accusing them or excusing them. So in other words, when we look at all of these different ideologies out there and we go, wow, they all look very similar in their morals. Well, sure, because Paul says the law is written on the heart. 
So what happens is, is globally, we're all showing that same law written on the heart and we're displaying it in our different ideologies, whatever they are. Uh, an atheist versus you know, a Buddhist have a lot of similar, similar moral ideas for this very reason. The law is just on the heart. It's in the conscience. It's in the person. That's where it resides. But the reason we say it doesn't save is because the Bible itself says law doesn't save. Law has never saved. Law cannot ever save. So, man, what we have is a lot of law from a lot of outlets. And in that, they're very similar. But they don't save. They don't. And that's the real issue. That's why it's Jesus versus religions. It's Jesus versus Christian religion. If Christian religion elevates law over gospel or grace. Jesus came into a very religious society, right? In Israel. They were Jewish. They were the only ones with the Bible. And they read their Bible a lot. But Jesus says, you're religious. You think your law is going to save. Law doesn't save. No religion, because all religion is law, can save. In fact, to get this more, why don't you open up to the book of Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And you can open up to 2.8, right? That's really where we're going to camp out. Because Paul's warning about something in this. And I think it's important for us even to heed the warning, to hear the words, to live out what he says. Because again, in our pluralistic culture, the United States, where we are a melting pot, there is even the risk at times that we don't mean to, but we slip into embracing things or thinking things or downplaying things in our faith that, that we really shouldn't do. And, and so Paul is writing to a group of Christians there in Colossae. He's letting them know that they need to be aware of the conditions in their world and to make sure they don't slide into some things. And so he starts off in chapter 2, verse 8. And he says, See to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that no one takes you captive. Literally, the idea here in its original context is make sure that you are not a spoil of war. Make sure that you're not taken as booty by another who comes in to conquer. And so in this sense, that's where we need to be aware. I don't want to be taken captive, taken in a war. There is a war. There is good. There is evil. There's Satan. There's God. There's gospel. And there's law. And that's in conflict. Always in conflict. And so Paul says, man, don't be taken away in this war that wants to elevate law over gospel. That wants to elevate other things above Christ. And the best way we can do this when we talk about, well, how do I know all the world religions? You really don't need to know all of them as much as you need to know what you believe and why you believe it. You know, it's like something we've probably all heard at some point or another, but but people have used the analogy of the Secret Service, and they say the success of the Secret Service when it comes to counterfeiting issues is the fact that they know the real thing so well they can always spot the counterfeit. But the key is they know the real thing well. And it's true for us, right? It's where we make the investment to know why do we believe what we believe? What is the very center point of the Christian faith? It's not about morality and it's not about ethics. It's about Christ crucified. It's about the gospel. It's about salvation only by grace and not by us. And so it means us knowing that with conviction, with confidence. And it's doing whatever we need to do to know that even more. I mean, uh, here in the next um, couple of months, Praxis, for example, is going to start moving into teaching basic Bible doctrine, how to interpret the Bible, you know, church history, things like that. Uh, You can come to it anytime you want just to learn. Maybe that would be a great opportunity. Go to the five modules on basic Bible doctrine. You go, oh, that's what we Christians believe. Just having a firm conviction and a firm sense of what our identity is as believers, right? Make sure that no one takes you captive. He says this because he knows there's two big hooks in the water always. Always. The first is he says it's philosophy. He says, see that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Now, philosophy isn't bad. My master's is in philosophy, but I'll tell you what. With a master's in philosophy, there's some confusion that goes on up here. All right? Just letting you know. Right? 
I mean, honestly, there is. Because it's like, well, we're going to listen to this thinker and this thinker and this thinker and this thinker and this thinker. And we're going to compare them and see their similarities and their differences. And they shape worldview and basic ideologies that shape all ethics in life. And you see, well, that guy makes sense and that guy makes sense. And that dude just liked his mother too much. And, you know, like all of that. Right? You get all of that going on, and it can breed confusion that isn't healthy. And some religions in the world, some ideologies, are all about the philosophy, the lover of wisdom, the lover of thought, the lover of information. I mean, just think of, of, of some of the things that you have to interact with, or I have to interact with. Atheism is really an issue of philosophy. It is. It's not religion, but it's ideology. It's philosophy. It's reasoning intellectually, hopefully to better the race. Because it wants to save itself. Not with God, but with intellect. With intelligence. With education. Right? The atheist says that's how we'll save the world. We'll just free everybody from ignorance. The Buddhist is a little bit different. They go, no, no, no. It's enlightenment in a different way. It's connection with the universe. But it's enlightenment. It's a philosophy. Even the New Age movement is very much about somehow gaining knowledge to be more liberated, more freed, more saved. Connection with the cosmos, connection with the dead, connection with aliens, whatever it is. It's somehow, if I just become more in tune intellectually or in my mind, then I'm, I'm saved, I'm free. I grew up in a little town called Sedona. In Arizona, and some people, if they know Sedona, and then I say that, they go, now we get you a little bit better, huh? And, um, yeah, all right, that's awesome. So, uh, and, and, and yet you, you saw this a lot. There was definitely this, this sense of, like, you know, we need to move on to this new age of human existence where our minds are freed. We're liberated. You just need to work toward that enlightenment. And yet Paul knows this is totally one of the hooks, right? Saved through the mind freed philosophy. So he says, watch out, because there's always going to be that thing that says, you know, this is how, this is how you, you, you take humanity forward. We're saving ourselves. Just be smart enough to save yourself. There's another one, though, that Paul says, too. If it's not philosophy, it's the way of piety. If it's not this idea of mindset, it's this way of action. He says, or through empty deceit, according to human traditions. So he says, don't let anybody take you captive by philosophy. That's hook one. Or by piety. That's hook two. The first one, again, is the salvation through what I think. The second one is salvation through what I do. Works. All of it's still just religion. But it's religion through works. And that is the, the challenge there. And if you look at some of the ideologies and religions in our world, you'll know that it's by works, right? You look at Islam, it's by works. You look at Judaism, it's by works. You look at some sects of Christianity, such as Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, it's by works. It's by works. It's religion. It's all the same. Uh, you, you get into other things, like even I, I talked about earlier, environmentalism. You know what that is? Salvation by works. It really is. I will forego my comfort to save the planet. So I will drive a smart car. And they're trying to offset my Ford Excursion with that. That smart car is just a speed bump to my Ford Excursion. And trust me, I'm pumping out a lot more than they're saving. All right, so, yeah. But they go, that's what we're going to save the world. And so we work and we sacrifice to save the world. Now, again, I'm not ripping on anybody saying I want to be environmentally sound. I want to make sure that I'm learning information and I'm academic or whatever. But what I'm saying is as soon as we think it saves the race, myself, or others, it's religion. And it's easy to do that. It's easy to want to work for it. It's easy to want to think that if I'm just smart enough, I can, I can get it. And yet Paul says, man, you, you need to watch out because those things, they don't save. They can be good things. They can be helpful things. Uh, in theology, we call these issues of common grace, which means they're helpful to the environment that we all live in. But they all ultimately, eternally lead away from God. Because that's Paul's big idea. Philosophy doesn't save and piety doesn't save. 
And the reason this is true is because all of these things are basically one part human, right? Human-centeredness in that sense. And another part demonically motivated, right? It's one part human-centered. We want to achieve. We want to earn. We want to be enlightened. We want to grow. We want to contribute to our ultimate salvation. Of course we want to do that. That's why we'll say, I'm not a bad guy. I'm a pretty good person. And I'm trying. Isn't that enough? Yes, we want to invest to heaven. But the other part is it's demonically motivated. This is why Paul says there in Colossians 2.8, according to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. When he says elemental spirits, he, he literally means demons. He's saying those, quote, in their culture, the gods of the elements that shape everything. See, when we start thinking about, you know, enlightenment saves or works will save, uh, it's not just purely a human construct. There's also this enemy that's in play wanting to, to whisper that in our ears as well. That's right. You just have to be smart enough. You just have to work hard enough. And yes, you can then get to God. That's all you got to do. And we go, yeah, that's a good idea, that's a good idea, that's a good idea, that's exactly what I should do. Right? I mean, that's the way it always plays in the human condition. It's just the way it works. And here's the deal. Satan loves that. He loves it. He loves to put us on the treadmill of doing. Perpetual doing, 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 doing. You have to do. Because you know the message he hates? It's already been done. He hates that message. He hates that message because that message is embedded into the cross of Christ where he said it is finished. And when Jesus said it is finished, it dethroned the devil. It destructed his infrastructure, decomposed his infrastructure. It just destroyed everything he was about, right? It just ruined him. He was vanquished. And so he hates it is finished. It is done. He hates it. So what he wants to keep saying is, no, no, you got to do. You got to do. You want to reach nirvana? You've you got to do. You want to, to, to have a bunch of virgins? You've got to do. Maybe with a bomber wrapped around you, you've got to do. I mean, that's how far he'll go to get people to do. Right? That's a lot of do. But he loves do. He hates done. And understand, he'll leverage everything to keep people doing. Uh, I, I, I try to reiterate, uh, reinforce this idea that um, Satan is uh, not anti-morality. He's very pro-morality. He's not anti-religion. He's pro-religion. He's not anti-good works. He's very pro-good works. He is all of these things because, again, it keeps everybody on the treadmill. Now, he loves immorality as well, and he loves atheism as well. He loves it all because it's all religion against Jesus. And that's all that matters. That's all we really need to know. It's the simple truth that philosophy isn't going to save, that piety isn't going to save. Jesus alone saves. Jesus alone saves. That's it. In fact, that's what he says in Colossians 2. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, and God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. That's it. That's it. That's how different it is. It's like the whole world is standing there and they're holding up the international soccer rule book to God. And they're saying, we're following all the rules. And God says, yes, but we're sledding, you know. You guys are on a flat surface, we're on a hill, you're on grass, I'm on snow, right? You can't use your hands, I can use my hands. It's sledding, right? It's not even the same context. As the world tries to achieve and to do, God says it doesn't even work. It only works when somebody else steps in for you and it is done. And that's the difference. Because again, go back to what the Bible tells us. Law cannot earn righteousness. Law can't earn righteousness. No matter how much we follow the law, we can't earn righteousness. In fact, uh, for our students that have been memorizing James, they, they were memorizing James too. They basically says... 
if you try to go down that road, it becomes exponentially more difficult. Because if you say, okay, I'm going to be saved through the law. Well, then you can't blunder at one point. Or you receive the wrath of all of the law as though you didn't do it. So law cannot establish righteousness. In fact, the more we try to be saved by the law, the more it just ends up condemning us. Right? Law says, I can't do it. Therefore, I need Jesus who has done it. Done, not doing. Saved through the cross, not saved through my efforts, not saved through my thoughts, not saved through my determination, not saved through my sense of just, I'm going to make it happen. Only Jesus can give righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin. That we might have the righteousness of God in him. That's it. Righteousness given, righteousness imputed. We don't earn it. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. He just gives it. Jesus alone. So I think this is important for us to get. I think it's important for us to get because even as some recent data has shown, uh, more than half of evangelicals don't believe that Jesus is the only way anymore. Evangelicals. Now what we'll say is, well, that's what we believe, but you know, it almost sounds kind of arrogant to say he's the only way. It sounds so exclusive and we sound very close-minded when we do that. It's really hard, I get it. The issue is, though, do we believe? Do we believe Jesus is the only way? Because, again, it's Jesus versus all religions. Like I said, even, quote, Christian religion. When law is elevated above grace, when what we do is more important than what has been done, when we miss the big idea of the gospel. So, first key thing, all religions are fundamentally the same, they don't save. But what happens if you end up in a conversation about world religions. That's kind of a different thing. I mean, the first thing here is just kind of understanding, here's all religions in relationship to Jesus, right? But the next thing is, okay, well, how do I go into the real world and have real conversation about this? Because again, hot topic, it's always going around. I mean, especially right now, it's interesting in the presidential kind of ramp up here, uh, seeing potentially the first uh, Republican Mormon candidate is kind of causing some conversation uh, in this whole thing, as well as all of the global conflict we have and how religion plays into that. So it's a pretty tough thing. And, and, and what I've realized from my own personal experience is that there are basically, uh, there's like a fork in the road when it comes to this idea of talking about world religions. And, and, and this fork, is, depending on which kind of road in the fork you take, shapes the conversation a little bit differently. One fork is if you're having a conversation on world religions. The other fork is if you're having a conversation with someone of a different religion. And and these are fundamentally two very different things, right? Usually the conversation on religion is often with somebody who is a nominal or non-practicing person who then wants to interact with you about what you think about religion. The other track is where you really are talking with somebody who's very committed to their faith, whatever else. It's different than yours, and you're having this dialogue. Uh, the, the first one is usually a little bit more punkish. The second one's a little bit more gracious, uh, as I have found in my own experiences. And so I want to break these down. We're going to do these really quick. But I, I want to break it down by first looking at the conversation on world religions. Like how you engage that, how this goes down, what happens. And uh, the first thing you have to understand is the question. The question is usually asked something like this. Do you think that all religions are basically the same? Now, I'm going to tell you right up front that that question is not the question. There is a question behind that question, all right? The real question is, do you think that you are right and everyone else is wrong? That, you know, like if your wife says, how do I look in these pants? The answer is not fat. Whatever else, you know, that question and the answer kind of it's the same thing right that's what i know and so you know when people ask that they are weighing you in fact to, to kind of simplify this a little bit uh, you have to understand again how this disposition sees the evangelical world right the evangelical community is according to all sorts of great helpful data done by evangelicals asking the non-believing world, they ask them, how do you perceive us? And they perceive us as narrow, judgmental, uh, hypocritical, closed-minded. Now, that doesn't mean we are. Some of us are. 
Some of us are not. Some of us are somewhere in between. I'm not saying whether we are or we are not. What I'm saying is we are perceived in a certain way. So they ask the question to see if we live up to their perceptions or not. Are you so arrogant as to believe? Which is a very loaded thing. It's like, when did you stop beating your wife? It's almost like you're not going to quite win. You know, on that where it's like, I, stop, I never stop. What? You know, you don't even know how to answer that. But, but, but I think there's a way through this. And, and here's the thing that I think is so important. When you're asked this, you get into this conversation with a person that you know really doesn't have any strong convictions of, of faith or religion. Um, you just got to realize that they're not looking for the answer as much as they're looking for the attitude when you give the answer. That's it. That's how simple that is. They're wanting to see how you respond. Maybe even less concerned with what, what you respond with. I mean, that might not even be as big a deal to them, right? Because sort of in this tolerant, pluralistic culture, man, we'll kind of put up with other people's ideas, but if other people come across as harsh with their ideas, that's a different game, right? And so they just want to know, how are you going to respond? What are you going to say? Are you going to sound kind? Are you going to sound gracious? Or are you going to sound like something else? And see, I think this is huge for us because it means we are aware that attitude is 51% of the whole issue. And so when we're asked questions about religion in relationship to ours, we will do well to focus on, I want to win the person. I don't have to win the argument. Right? I want to make an impact. I want to make a difference. I don't just need to make a point. Because I know even in my own life, there have been times where I've had conversations with people and I start thinking it's a debate. It's not a debate if they don't know Jesus. It's a rescue mission. I don't need to win because I want to win over. Right? So that's the whole heart. And, and especially, what is it going to be the thing that we ultimately say makes us different than every other religion? You know what we're going to say? Grace! Jump. Right? We don't, you know, if it's grace, then we should be gracious. Really, we should be gracious. They should be able to go, yep, I see what's different about what you believe in the way you carry yourself. This is why I do get just irritated at times when I do see evangelicals on the news that don't sound gracious to the unbelieving world. I don't mind when we're not gracious with each other at times to make points. I get that. But the unbelieving world is looking, saying, what's different about you? And we say, the gospel of grace, darn it! Right? That doesn't fly. And I know we're not that aggressive. But you get the spirit. And so we just want to own, yeah, grace. Grace. And there's going to be times where we're trying to be gracious and trying to share. They might even become really aggressive with us. You know? Uh, when they do that, when they're like, what about this, what about this, what about this? And you can feel the salsa level rising inside, right? Where you just, here's what you need to tell yourself. More grace. More, more cowbell, like that. More cowbell, more grace. More, more, more cowbell grace, right? I mean, just do that. Because they're testing. How far can I push you before you snap? How far can I go before uh, you're not gracious? You'll, you never know what God might be doing in the context of that person as they're pushing. In fact, a formula I think is helpful is to understand it's about attitude plus acceptance of that person, but minus the, the need to have agreement. You, you don't have to agree with them on everything, but you can have a gracious attitude. You can have an accepting disposition. In fact, I came across a great quote from C.S. Lewis this week that I thought highlighted this so well. He said, there's someone I love, even though I don't approve of what he does. There's someone I accept, though some of his thoughts and actions revolt me. There's some, uh, there is someone I forgive, though he hurts the people I love most, and that person is me. There are plenty of things that I do that I do not like, but if I can love myself without approving of all that I do, then I can love others without approving of all they do. And, and I, I think this is really valuable, not just on religion, but on ideologies. Like I said, we don't just live in a world of religions. We live in a world of religions and ideologies. And all of those things are designed, quote, to save, but they're all law that doesn't lead to God. So as we interact with all of those, we go, this is the heart I want to have. I don't have to agree, but I do want to have an attitude that's good and an acceptance that is true.
but also understand that in the end, there may be rejection, right? There may be the sense of, not interested. I don't like this. But here's the key, and this is the toughest thing, and I haven't even fully gotten this yet. I really just haven't. I mean, part of this is like, I know what I should do, and I don't know if I'm always doing it well. But in the end, if they are, um, man, I can't swallow that, that Christianity thing. I can't swallow that Jesus thing. What they should be opposed to and standing against is actually Jesus. Not me as the messenger. Not my citadel, not my my building, not my creed, not my denomination, not my label. But Jesus is really what we want people offended by if there's any offense. Because they go, I just can't take that cross thing. In fact, you see this in Acts He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. He says, hey man, then there's salvation to no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I mean, there was this reality that what the the Jews in that period rejected was Jesus. The cross. Grace. And ultimately, that should be the stumbling block. Not everything else. The gospel. Let that be the stumbling block. And so sometimes you have these conversations, you have a great attitude, you have an accepting spirit. In the end, they just can't swallow Jesus. And you know what you should say with that? Then then I was faithful. Then I was faithful. Now, what if you have a conversation with somebody of another religion, right? That first one is on religion. And that's probably the one that you're going to experience even more. It's just a person that just wants to throw it out there and they're looking for a debate. That's why you show grace. Because you know what this is. It's just baiting you for something, right? And you just kind of realize that. But how do you deal with conversations with world religions, right? In other words, a, a person that you're interacting with who is a Muslim or who is a Hindu or, and I'm going to put it more into our neighborhood, or who is a Mormon, or is a Jehovah's Witness. Because, again, I affirmed at the beginning, I, I do not believe that those institutions, those doctrines of those groups, are saving doctrines. I'm not saying something about every Mormon. I'm not saying something about every Jehovah's Witness. I'm talking about the system. I'm talking about the stated doctrine of its works. So when we talk with these different people, how do we have a conversation? Well, this is what's great about Paul is that he sort of gives us some insight to some of this. And we're going to learn from him this morning. And so really quick, book of Acts, chapter 17. If you want to open up to that, you certainly can. Acts 17. And it starts off with the fact that passion against religion is okay. It is okay to be passionate against religion. Jesus was Paul was, right? And we see this here, right? So starting in verse 16 of chapter 17, it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols that he saw everywhere in the city. Now you got to remember Athens, man. It is the birthplace of democracy, of music, of medicine, of thought. Most of what we understand today was born out of that location, So lots of different things happen in Athens. But over the course of time, the culture changed and everything else. And by the time Paul gets there, there's about 10,000 people that live in Athens. But on Mars Hill, that hillside that Paul sees, there are 30,000 idols. 30,000. And so Paul walks in pretty much first kind of like, wow, this is the place where all thought has really been established for the modern world in his day. And then he sees this scene... And I don't mean this any, in any way that isn't absolutely true to what I mean. He sees a scene that for Paul would be like walking through the red light district. I mean, he isn't just like, wow, look at all these idols. That's dumb. No, for Paul, it's visceral. It's like seeing young women sell themselves in windows. Because he is still a guy who hails from the Old Testament, hails from the Jewish nation. And the first commandment is no other God. Second commandment, no idols. Top one, top two. Right? That's, and so for Paul, he sees this goes, man, here's the problem. And from that, he is angry. Literally, it's what it means. It says deeply troubled. He's angry. And so he's got passion against the 30,000 represented religions that he sees there on the hillside. And so that's why I say the big idea is it's okay to be angry at religion. I mean, there's times I get up here and I bang on religion because it's so destructive. 
But here's the key that we learn from Paul. Passion against religion is okay as long as you convert your heat to light. As long as you convert your heat to light. So it says in verse 17, it says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there, some of the Epicurean and Stodic philosophers, and also conversed, they conversed with him. See, I, I, I love this because Paul goes, ugh. First of all, he was already going, ugh, at Judaism. Because he was one of those and killed a lot of Christians before he was converted to Christ. So he knows the love of law that leads to hell there. But then he comes into Athens, he sees Mars Hill, and he goes, ah, oh, then there's that too. But instead of just being angry and say, they're all lost, he says, I need to be light. I need to get to the real root. I, I need to solve the problem in the truest way possible. So you see in that text, he reasoned with three groups, right? He reasoned with the no ways, or one ways, the no ways, and the many ways. All three, right? The one ways were the Jews. There's one way to heaven, it's God. There's one way, the covenant made to Abraham. One way. But they had substituted gospel with law, but they were the one ways. Then you had Epicureans. They were basically, literally, the, the word in Greek is agnostic. There was just, there's no way. Can't know. Nobody can know. Can't know God. If there is a God, there's something we just don't know. That's an agnostic. And then the many ways were the Stodics. They were the pagans. They were the kind of the, you know, like the, we have many gods. We're the pantheists and, you know, the panentheists and the, all those labels. And what's cool about Paul is he interacts with all three. That's what I love about him. He reasoned. By reason, it means he's listening, he's learning. If you're going to talk with somebody of another faith, here's my first piece of advice. Actually listen to them. Say, man, so what exactly do you believe? And take it in and, and really listen to what they're saying. Because one of these things we'll do sometimes as Christians is we'll say, oh, well, you're a Mormon. I already know what Mormons believe. You don't know what that Mormon believes. Right? I, I hate it when Mormons say, oh, you're a Christian. I know what you believe. No, you don't. You know something generic. You don't know something about me. If I'm meeting with somebody and, and they're a, a Muslim and I go, oh, I know what all Muslims believe. No, I don't. I know less than half of everything, especially about other people's religion. Right? I need to understand the nuances of what they think, what they believe, how they interact with their faith. And then from that, I go, oh, wow, I can learn some things. I can have some discovery. Also, it just shows a real appreciation in relationship. So I want to soak in. What are you all about? What do you believe? Why do you believe it? That's awesome. That's cool. Because from that information, then I can have some insightful dialogue. I'm not constantly saying to them, no, 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 you don't believe that. Let me tell you what you believe. Right? That doesn't work. I mean, most of us, if we read anything on other religions, it's reading Christians' take on other religions. Which I'm not saying is bad, but if you ever read like an Islamic book on what Christians believe, you might be a little horrified. Just a little. You go, we don't believe that or that or that. Sure. So sometimes we really need to go to the source to understand what they believe. And then from that, we do our homework. In fact, I think that's what's really freeing. It means that you don't have to run around knowing all the religions of the world and how to, to interact with them. You just wait till God brings that relationship in your life. You start interacting with them. From that, you start learning what they believe, and then you can have response. And so that's what Paul does. He hears them, he listens to them, everything else, and then he does a few basic things that are really cool. The first thing is that after he takes this in, he highlights the truth of God that they would recognize. Right? So he goes, oh, okay, I heard some of that. Some of that is, is true, but twisted. And so he taps into what is true and gives it direction. And so he's brought before this council, the same council uh, that actually uh, Socrates was tried, convicted, and forced to drink hemlock in front of. That's great. Um, but Paul goes there and he says to them, men of Athens, he says, I perceive that in every way that you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore was, uh, what you were worshiping as unknown, or literally, uh, this word agnostic, unknowable, he says, this I proclaim to you. And he says, and in him we live, we move, or have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. He taps into what they know. 
And I love the fact that he even gives them a sense of like pat on the back. Hey, I see that you're religious. Now, five minutes before that, what was he thinking? Ugh, idols, I'm angry. But he converted his heat to light and then he gives them a compliment. Because he's got the big idea. He's going for the win, right? He's going for the win them over, not just to have a good argument, but to see them converted. So he gives them these markers where they go, oh yeah, there's that one to the unknown God. We, we had 30,000 other things, but we figured if we're leaving anybody out, we should have something. So Paul says, yeah, that's the one. And then he quotes one of their, their, their poets who actually hear the quote is regarding Zeus. You know, Zeus is the one that uh, really everybody is the offspring of Zeus when he quotes that. But he says, you know, that quote, as your poets have said, yeah, right idea, wrong God. But he taps into what they know. From this, highlighting truths, building a bridge, everything else, right? Establishing rapport. He then describes the nature of God in verses 24 to 27. Right? And it's cool in this description. I won't read it, but I want to highlight some things. Remember, the Epicureans were agnostics. And so in Paul's description, he says, ah, but God can be known. And then the Stotics, those guys were the polytheists. And yet, what Paul is saying, ah, but God is one. And to the Jews, they're like, ah, but it's still back in the temple. And to Paul, he said, no, no, God is unhoused now. Right? So what Paul does with all the groups is he brings clarity. Here's where you're right, but it's twisted, so let me help you understand better who this God is. And notice that he's always taking it back to God, not a system. He's taking about to the God who liberates, the God who can be known, the God who is one, the God who is personal. He takes him back to that God, and he describes God's nature. And so they're able to hear this. Oh, okay, so, you know, he is noble. He is one. He doesn't live in a house. You know, oh, we're understanding. And then Paul goes to this next place that is really tough to do. He shares the requirement. Verse 29, he says, Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, Paul isn't so busy making friends and influencing people and shaking hands and kissing babies and all the things that you could do that he, he says, yeah, I'm just not going to get to that offensive thing, which is repent. No, he builds the bridge, he cares, he invests, he clarifies, but then he says, here's what God does expect. And while the world is waiting for war or economic catastrophe or some new cataclysmic situation to happen, Paul says, here's what I know for sure, what is coming is judgment. And the one that God rose, Jesus will do it. Therefore, God wants people to repent. And, and when we're having this conversation again, how you, you, you get to that, I, you know, it, it depends on how the conversation's going. But understand that repent and believe the gospel is the saving message. We don't win if they just sort of think Jesus is cool. Like, oh yeah, Jesus guy isn't so bad. Everybody likes Jesus. Did you know that? If you dumb Jesus down enough, everybody likes him. Really, if you strip him of all his doctrine, all of his standard, of all of his expectations, and you just put him as a dude that's basically like a really, really cool hippie, everybody loves him. I mean, sincerely, everybody loves him. Right? But if you let his standard, his doctrine, his expectation remain, he can be quite offensive to some. But that is the message. Repent and believe. And so Paul takes them to that place. And as Paul does that, really, the, the advice I would give to us this morning is then you just got to let the Holy Spirit handle the rest. Just got to let the Holy Spirit handle it. In fact, it says now, when they heard of this idea of the resurrection of the dead, it says some mocked. So they rejected. And others said, we'll hear you more about this in the future. And they were curious. It says, but some joined him and believed. They accepted. Three different groups. He talks to different groups. And they respond in different ways. Paul didn't feel he had to do the heavy lifting. He just felt like he just needed to be faithful with the message. To be kind, to be gracious, to be clear, to explain. And say, here's what God seeks of all men, that they would repent and believe. And some go, sweet. Some say, this guy's a wingnut. Others say, hey, we'll talk to you later, which means don't call us, we'll call you. That's probably what that meant. Um, 
But Paul was faithful. He was faithful. Because the bottom line was he would trust one thing that would change everything. That's it. Trust one thing that will change everything. What's the one thing? Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that anyone can boast. Thus, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That was it for Paul. That was it. He says, if I boast in anything, I will boast in Christ and his cross. That's it. People would even complain, the guy's not terribly bright. He's not super insightful. He doesn't come with deep wisdom. He doesn't have a lot of party tricks and magic shows and cool signs in the sky. And Paul says, I know because all I care about is Christ crucified. It's the one thing that changes everything. Let's go ahead and bow our heads right now. And as we do, um, it's kind of an opportunity to, to get alone uh, just between us and God. And, and I, I lay a challenge both to the convinced and maybe to those who are curious. To the convinced, uh, man, we have the, the most important message the, the, the world has ever heard. And it needs to hear it more in gracious ways and honest ways and ways that are sincere to our person, but they need to hear And we carry it. We are the ambassadors, Paul says. And so I encourage us to be just to be praying about, you know, Jesus, who do you want me to talk to? What doors are you going to open up to me today? I want to be looking. I want to be uh, used in that way. That's your opportunity. Because what you know is it doesn't matter what the religion is. All religions don't save. Only Jesus saves. That's how simple that is. And there might be some of you in this room this morning where you're checking us out, you're a guest today, maybe you've been coming for a little while and you're, you're curious about things and, and you're going, man, I just need to take that step. I need to take that step to believe. I want to be of those who believe what Paul said, that Jesus died and rose for us. All you have to do where you're at is you just go to him and pray. Say, Jesus, forgive me. I've sinned against you. I want to be brought into your family. I want to be filled with your life. I want your purpose to be my purpose. You make that your prayer and your words and your way. He hears you. He saves you. And we would love to know about him. After the service, just find somebody with a white tag or come up and talk to myself, whatever it is. Uh, We would love to hear that you made that your decision today. Jesus, I pray that you will use us as a people and as a church uh, for your purposes. I pray that uh, we are faithful to your message and all that it means. We love you and praise you in your name. Amen.